difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with Genevieve Kosky, Scott Tobias, Keith Phipps. On our last episode, we talked about The Host, Bong Joon-ho's unconventional monster movie, which breaks all the rules by putting its CGI critter front and center in the opening act, then pitting a family of loving incompetence against it. That family has a few things in common with the family at the center of Parasite, Bong's latest movie. Key among them is the return of actor Song Kang-ho, who starred as the hapless young dad in The Host and reappears as a somewhat more capable and certainly more traditional father in Parasite. This time, his family is a group of low-level grifters living in a depressingly cluttered underground apartment where they steal Wi-Fi, fold pizza boxes badly for extra cash, and band together to get by. Then a well-off friend of the family finagles the teenage son, Ki-woo, into a position tutoring the teenage daughter of a rich family. Ki-woo quickly sees an opportunity and manages to slip his sister, Ki-jong, in as an art instructor for the rich family's bratty young son. He brings his father, Kai-tak, in as the family chauffeur and his mother, Chung-suk, in as the family's housekeeper. This involves undermining the people already in those positions and pretending that none of the members of Ki-woo's family know each other and that they're all experienced at their jobs. Briefly, the two families are closely and peacefully bonded, but the lies and the poor family's ambitions begin to pile up, a massive secret about the rich family's home comes to light, and a major confrontation starts brewing. Parasite feels weirdly similar to the host, even though there's no monster in sight, unless you count entitlement, class inequity, poverty, and greed as monsters. Which maybe you should, given how they shape Parasite's story. At the same time, this isn't a typical class warfare drama. Like the host, it has broad comedy elements. And then there's that mid-film left turn, which we're probably going to have to talk about here, so consider this your advanced spoiler warning if you haven't seen the film. Again, Bong Joon-ho's obsession with family bonds and duties shaped the story. But where the host was in part about bringing some realistic expectations to a fantasy scenario, Parasite feels more like it's about bringing some wild fantasy elements to what it could have been a conventional drama. So, Scott, you and I are united on this one uh, in a, a rare show of unanimity. We both feel that this is Bong Joon-ho's best film. Uh, do you, you want to lead off by uh, telling us how you, how, why you feel that's the case? Well, I mean, it just has everything going for it. I mean, there, it, it moves well. It's hilarious. It's tense. It's got huge surprises in it. It's a rich film thematically. It has a lot to say about the class struggle, but in a way that I think is really subtle and yet pointed and political. Uh, we can certainly get into all that. It's, it's technically dazzling. I mean, the way the set 
operates, the set of this, this home operates, is extremely well planned out. I mean, it's just him working at the top of his game. It's got the, got another great performance by his favorite lead actor, and the rest of the family is great. I just There's nothing about this film I don't love. <laughs> period it's just a great movie genevieve yeah no dissent here i was on board from pretty much the first scene i am in agreement with with everything scott says and i think particularly struck me was just the sense of place in this film like the set of the park family house is incredible and there's so much storytelling in that set alone and the way it's constructed and laid out but also you know the semi-basement apartment and you know the the neighborhood that the kim family lives in like it's just such a visually rich film to match all the narrative and emotional richness on display keith oh i mean i'm just gonna repeat what everyone else said i guess i mean it is 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 fantastically well done i love that i mean they're very different films and obviously we're not talking about comparisons yet but i mean both of these films have like a rhythm just carries you from scene to scene but also in a way that kind of keeps you off base you know when things settle down is when things get really strange and unpredictable in this film, too. I mean, I, right as soon as you think you know what kind of movie you're watching, it, it changes on you. Yeah, I always hugely admire this movie. I'm really curious, I guess, about your where your sympathies lie in this film. I There are a whole lot of things to talk about here, but in a way, all of the like political and social messages, all of the things that the movie does around con man stories, uh, even some of the big twists, all kind of revolve around who are the protagonists here or who are the heroes? And I feel like you're set up to really enjoy these. Enjoy is maybe the wrong word because I think you unequivocally enjoy them. But do you sympathize with the poor family throughout? Like as they're they're moving in among these kind of cartoonishly dumb and out of touch rich people, uh, they do some pretty awful things in pursuance of of social climbing and success. And then once they get a little success, uh, their their greed kind of undoes them. Like how where do your sympathies lie in this film? I mean, it lies with them because you're inclined to root for the underdog, but you. It, the film, I think, is really good about making you pause to consider the consequences of their actions. I think there's a moment right before, like the scene where they're all getting drunk and comfortable in in, in the rich family's home, where up to that moment, it's like you, you know, yeah, they did some bad things, but they're really only trying to earn money at this point. They're not trying to rip anybody off. They're trying to rip. They're t- not trying to rip their employers off. They're just trying to stay employed and make and earn some pretty decent salaries for the first time in, in their collective lives, it seems like. So yeah, unscrupulous for sure. But you know, I, I, I didn't, I didn't dislike them. But they, I mean, they'd stop being underdogs at the point where they destroy two other people's right. lives yeah, in order to, to, to make that money. I know. Yeah. but you, I don't know. You, you still kind of root for them. I did anyway. <laughs> I mean, I think you root for them because they're somewhat capable scammers. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the the scam is part of what's uh, alluring about them. You know, it's not because their morality is airtight. You know, I mean, they, they do some pretty terrible things. And, you know, not to mention they're just flat out lying throughout, you know. But, you know, there's no real hero or villain in this story. You know, it's really more about the ignoble things that people are forced to do, uh, you know, when they're cogs in a machine that victimizes them. And I think the the title of this movie is so interesting because it's never clear or spelled out exactly what is the parasitic relationship at play here, because it could be one of one or two or three or four, you know, different different relationships. And they're all kind of 
none of them are are morally pure. It just you know, occurred to me now, as I was thinking about how oh, this movie would have been a fun pairing with Roma last year in mm. terms of just like acknowledging that the help are right on that line. These unacknowledged lives that they're leading are, are so perilous and fraught and not acknowledged and their job is to make everything run so smoothly for the people who employ them you know this kind of occurred to me obviously the two films are very different but um, but one of the things i liked about i mean a couple of things i like about it in terms of the depiction of these families i don't necessarily think the the rich family is cartoonishly anything i mean I, you know the, the mm-hmm. wife is a tad on the dim side but one insight the film has at a certain point is like people who are rich can afford to be nice you know, and, th- and th- that is, I think that's kind of an important insight that the film has. These are not vicious people. They're entitled, but they're not vicious and they can afford to be. And then uh, by the same token, the film is so much about how class systems work to pit poor people against other poor people, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's the mm-hmm. conflict that gets set up when we discover the second family is that is is now their fighting is what ultimately keeps the rich family rich right that they can set these poor families are sort of set it against each other it doesn't necessarily work out 100 percent that way at the very end of the film which i know our free listener mike d'angelo that was kind of his um knock on the film is that they felt like that was like a really strong theme that the very end of the movie violates a little bit by having the rich father get stabbed but um but that's a whole nother ball of wax oh that's a interesting ball of wax that we should maybe dig into but at the same time, there's just <laughs> there's a lot there that I want to talk about. I, I'm going to push back and say that I, I do think the rich family is pretty pretty cartoonish. I, I think the the little boy is kind of a a Dennis the Menace like over the top uh, excessive brat, you know, running around with his Indian kit shooting arrows at people, and the uh, teenage That's a typical boy though. It's a boy. <laughs> <laughs> spoken like, spoken like somebody without yeah. a, a and, bunch and, of little boys plus, running around plus, the house. Uh, plus, his his new art teacher keeps him in line. Well, God that's that's all. That's a whole different issue. I'm talking about that. how they're initially presented. So, uh-huh. so the the son is uh, kind of a, an over the top brat. The teenage daughter is presented as kind of canny in getting out of work and manipulating people and then just kind of like a, a sex pot who will go after any teenage boy in the room with her. That's, that's, that's harsh. I think the mom is a lot dimmer than you're uh, giving her credit for. And like the dad is just sort of a little bit of a cipher, like a little bit of a cipher who just kind of comes across as judgmental. He's not nearly as cartoonish as he could be. Like he could be kind of a, an evil caricatured businessman who's, I don't know, scheming to destroy the local youth center and, and plow it over and build condos unless they put on some kind of show to raise the money to buy it for themselves. Like he could be a much bigger archetype than he is. But I think that they're all characterized in pretty negative ways and that we're kind of given the idea that the poor family, by taking advantage of them, is not victimizing anybody who doesn't maybe deserve victimization. Oh, I had the opposite read. Really? I really did. I mean, I felt like they're out of touch and they are completely naive about how the world works outside their bubble. But they don't come off as bad people. To yeah. me. And I think that's part of what makes the film interesting is that, you know, you're, you, I think you're kept at a somewhat of a distance from them, but you don't necessarily feel like these are, are villains who get what's coming to them. I'm going to like kind of merge your, your thought and Tasha's uh, or, or go between them and say, I do think that they are, uh, the part family is characterized negatively, but I don't think it's cartoonish. I think it's actually pretty subtle, the ways in which their horrible, you know, richness, whatever comes out. I'm, I'm one example I'm thinking of is the scene 
where Mr. Park is, it's his first time being driven by Kitek. And uh, he says something to him like, don't worry, this, this isn't a test. But the whole time he's like holding a glass of liquid in, in his hand and sort of like looking at it. And it's sort of this this subtle indicator of you better not make me spill my drink, you know, and he like compliments how smoothly he he turns the car and like it very clearly is a test, but it's so subtle that you can pass it off as like, oh, he's just he's just being a nice guy. And then I think it comes through obviously a lot more explicitly with the whole smell thing, you know, and mm, we yeah. and, and which is what sort of sets off the violence at the very end but you know it's the foundation is laid at first subtly and then more explicitly throughout the film the whole idea that there's a a semi-basement smell about all of them yeah so yeah so i mean obviously these are you know there's a certain rottenness at the core of these people that's an extension of their privilege and their wealth but i don't think the film makes that screamingly obvious in their characterization. I definitely don't think that it suggests, as as Keith was saying, I don't think it suggests at the end that they get what's coming to them. I don't think that the film ever means to say that they deserve to die or have their their family broken. I don't, I don't think that they deserve destruction. When I'm talking about them getting what they deserve, I just mean losing some of that money to a group of people who are arguably working much harder for it, uh, who have made much bigger sacrifices Mm -hmm. for it, that they deserve to be taken advantage of in a way because they have too much and they don't appreciate it. That's where I see the big kind of class issue here. So you're talking about it just on the level of the scam, not not of the the ultimate violence. So okay. So you're saying kill all rich people, Tasha. I'm saying saying. eat the rich. (laughs) I'm going full joker here Mm -hmm. and I'm going to go crash an ambulance through a wall immediately after this uh, podcast taping. But we should finish the podcast taping first. So, Scott, what yeah. what exactly is Mike saying that the is the theme of the movie that, that the ending of it betrays? Because he felt like the film was building quite ingeniously to this conflict between two poor families and that with the rich family benefiting from that conflict and that being a metaphorically rich in its own right. But when you get to the end, you get the rich father getting stabbed. And so he's sort of brought into that and, and all of that turns into this messy chaos, basically, that, that kind of takes you away from the crispness of that theme. It just becomes much more, much messier um, and maybe not as satisfying to Mike, though. Again, I can't speak for him. He's, uh, he, uh, I imagine he, he's, he's going to listen into this episode. You know, seeing it again last night, I did like that the boiling point was what it was, that it was about this smell that Jennifer was talking about and, and how that was a theme that just kept being brought up about like, oh, they got that kind of subway smell or they all need to use, maybe use different soaps or something. Or there, it was a scene where the wife is riding the back of the car and she starts just kind of pick up on a smell. And this is after the guy, after the home's been flooded. And it's just like, I can see that as a breaking point for this character and, and um, for him to express his rage the way he does is an earned moment in the sense that this is not, uh, he's temperamentally disinclined to that kind of violence uh, and he's been driven to that point in a way that the film has at the very least set up meticulously. Yeah, I I mean, I can understand the argument that just like on a metaphorical level, it should be about the poor families competing with each other to get a scrap of what the rich families have. But I just don't think that this movie betrays that. I I think the direction it goes is very satisfying because I, I think that there's this... 
direction throughout the entire film that just sort of implies, well, you know, we can all get along as long as you're oblivious to our needs and we're fulfilling our needs through our own cleverness. Like we can enter this sort of symbiotic relationship as long as we're finding ways to eke out our own survival under your nose without you noticing and crushing us. And and in the end, the rich family does notice and uh, like immediately react against it. I, I think that there's a, a pretty strong class issue there at the point where the rich family realizes what's going on and is looking down on the poor family, where the poor family is driven to in a way, a much more honest expression of uh, anger and frustration. I feel like it's a metaphor for revolution that's really trenchant and that's regrettable in terms of the characters, but just like politically pretty sound. And I think it's notable that there is a third family at play here. The probably the most explicit parasitic relationship is the, you know, the guy who's been living in the basement secretly, you know, like, like, I think that's the most literal sense of the title. But as far as the ending and like what each of these families loses, like everyone, someone dies from all three families. And in the case of the the housekeeper and her husband, they, they both perish. There is no immunity of who gets out of this. You know, everyone suffers loss as a result of this three-way parasitic relationship. So I before we move on to connections, something that's very specific to this film uh, is the use of food. There's so much food in this film. There's, you know, the the pizza boxes are like a, a core job. There's the, the peach allergy and the weaponization of uh, peaches. There's the whole Ramdon sequence and the arguing back and forth about who makes it who gets it Mm -hmm. there's the big junk food binge that the the poor family goes on there's the question of the man living below without food and what what it takes to get food smuggled to him and then there's the cake at the end there's just there's so much about it and to me the connection there is that this film is is about survival it's about eking out like what you need to survive and and food is a major part of that but i'm curious whether you see more to it than that whether there's like any either connective thread or just like interesting aspects of food being such an obsession in this film. I mean, I think I've said this before when we brought up food as a topic on this podcast, but like, you know, food is the great equalizer. We all have to eat. So I think just in a film about classes and inequality between them, food is a, a unifier. And because of that, it can be used symbolically in, in very interesting ways, as, as this film does. I thought a good sit was the great equalizer. <laughs> is yeah. a sit really that good if you don't have food while you're sitting? <laughs> but I don't know. I, I, I this, Believe it or not, even after seeing this film twice, I didn't pick up on the food thing. Theme, which was which is pretty silly now that now that it's very symbolic it. scott very symbolic more <laughs> symbolic than the rock you might argue the rock is pretty <laughs> symbolic isn't it i mean honestly i i hadn't hugely picked up on it until i saw how many people were building their coverage around explaining the symbolism of the peach which i didn't feel like there was a huge amount of symbolism there that needed detailed explaining but when once i started thought, thinking about the peach i started thinking about well that's only really one aspect of the exploration of food. Ooh, in the so what what, the what is the symbol? Yeah, what is the symbolism of the peach? Oh, I don't know. It's just uh, this purity of the peach and the way it's uh, you know basically used to de- destroy somebody, mm. that yeah. kind of thing. Okay. And mostly, I think people are trying to find a way to be obsessed with it because they're still obsessed with "Call Me by Your Name." <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm having trouble pulling up where I read it, but uh, the peach thing specifically is another thing that came directly from Bong's experience. Like he had a interaction with someone with a peach allergy and just sort of filed that away 
So I'm Pretty not that there's allergy. Not, not that there's yeah, not that there's not symbolism at play there, but I don't know how intentional it is on on his part. Well, let's wrap up with this. Uh, Bong described this film as quote a comedy without clowns and a tragedy without villains. <laughs> what, what do you think of that description? Pretty good. I mean, though you seem to think that rich people are villains. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know that I think they're villains. I think that they're villainized a little bit. I, yeah. I don't think that they're villains like, you know, in the Joker versus uh, Batman sense, but I think that they're portrayed in negative ways so we can feel better about like negative things being done to them. Again, not fully up until the end of the, the movie, but about them being like victimized by people who need things from them. I mean, I think that's something that could apply to, well, I guess... I was gonna say it could apply to the host as well, but arguably there's a, a clown or two in the mix there. But you know, I mean, I think that's just sort of a summation of Bong's approach in general. He's he's not about clear cut boundaries in any way in terms of characterization, in terms of genre, in terms of tone. You know, it's 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 very fluid, all within highly you know structured filmmaking techniques. So uh, I think that's kind of what makes him interesting. Well, I think a lot of his films are very fluid and tend to kind of flow in and out of his various films. So that seems like a a good thing to talk about uh, when we come back to talk about connections. Uh, We'll be right back after this break to talk about the links between the host and Parasite. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things that they have in common. Genevieve, you want to kick us off with one of these? We've got quite the list here. So uh, you, you want to just take us away? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I kind of uh, teased it in the first half of this uh, conversation when I talked about Parasite's use of space. But both Parasite and the host, you know, sort of make metaphorical and, and physical use of sort of above ground spaces and below ground spaces. And, you know, I think that, again, just on like a filmmaking level that allows for some really compelling imagery and obviously much more strongly in Parasite it's borne out on a a metaphorical or symbolic level with the family living in the semi-basement and the family living in this walled above ground palace on a hill but also in the host we have the little girl forgotten in the in the sewers you know and uh the family being prevented from going down there to to retrieve her by the military complex above ground, you know, and even in that first sequence in the host when the monster appears for the first time, he kind of emerges up from below and goes up this interesting staircase structure. It's mostly a visual thing, this sort of sense of above, above and below, but it definitely has echoes in the themes of both of these films. Yeah, I think that's pretty key. I, I think it's also worth noting that even in Parasite, being below ground is is being in a place of danger. It, it doesn't have a monster in it, but when the floods come, they don't oh really God, have any flood. recourse. Their home is destroyed. The possessions are destroyed. Like even their smell is destroyed. There's just that same sense of threat and lack of safety in being like on a lower level, on a lower level of society, on a lower level of like an, an the economic system and just physically on a lower level. For some reason, <laughs> again, not until second viewing did I recognize how similar both of those dwellings are, you know, both of those sub-basement dwellings. Because the question, when you discover this man who's been living in the uh, shelter for over four years it's like with no light or even any light you think how could a person live like this and it's like well what we've experienced with our hero and and his family is not 
that dissimilar, you know, and uh, and and of course we see things get worse in that house. <laughs> the you know we see we see it get bad right away. I mean, one of, one of the things that immediately won me over to the movie was was the decision to leave the windows open so so they can benefit from the fumigation. More gas. Yeah, that does have a parallel that I hadn't even thought about with the Agent Yellow spreading uh, through yeah. throughout the space in the host. That's. That's pretty crazy. Yeah, not to bring it all back to Joker, but I was thinking about how this is this is actual squalor <laughs> versus <laughs> Arthur Arthur Fleck's uh, modest apartment he shares with his mom or whatever. I'm really fascinated by that toilet that's up on a level. Yeah, like how, what yeah. what what you know is like some sort of rehab where they well, there wasn't a basement before. So I know, Apparently, but... those are fairly common. Really? according to, to Bong. Yeah, yeah, or at least in that type of apartment, which. You know, I I want to note that uh, the Kim family lives in a you know a semi basement. They do still have a window. They still can see the outside. Mm-hmm. You know, and we do also see an even more basementy basement. You know, so it adds like a third level because the Kims are not they're not entirely poverty stricken. You know, they're just keeping their heads above water. So there's like this idea that they could <laughs> they could go they could go even yeah no that becomes very metaphorical later <laughs> yeah it's very metaphorical or uh, maybe it just becomes very literal later is a better way right yeah it. but the like the basement you know the man living in the basement is sort of like, again a, a symbol of how much lower they could sink and and in the end one of them does sink you know so the there's levels there's literal levels <laughs> of, you know working in this movie Keith for what it's worth as far as uh, comparisons with uh, Joker go uh, my husband Bob came back from seeing Parasite and was like so is this just another Joker origin story <laughs> uh, because Kiwu ends up with uh, damage to his head and starts laughing uncontrollably. True. And he hmm. kind of ends up with uh, Arthur Fleck's condition where he laughs in inappropriate uh, circumstances and under inappropriate moments. And then we go off into an ending that is probably pretty demonstrably a fantasy. So he's like, is this just the same film, just just made better? I mean, it, there's the fantasy sequence, but then it like the end end is him back in the, the semi-basement looking out that window. And I Connections is probably the time to bring this up. This is sort of like a mini connection. But it, it, I was struck rewatching the host that both of these films end with the protagonist back in the exact space where they began, mm. but with a massive loss behind them Mm -hmm. you know and especially in parasite where striving is such a big part of the narrative ending it with him back in that same space is is really poignant and both of those movies end up sort of focusing on a young man who's lost a a girl in his life who he was related Mm -hmm. to who's very important to him who just kind of like disappears as a presence who you're left with this moment of like mourning and loss and trying to live without her. Just as a personal note, I lived in a basement my senior year of uh, college. I, mm. I don't recommend it. I really don't recommend it at all. In fact, <laughs> oh, I've, next... I've lived in a lovely garden apartment or two in my in my day. Lovely, yeah. they, can be, they can be nice. This was yeah. this was not nice, <laughs> and it was really tiny, just a <laughs> tiny window to the outside. You know, I, again, don't recommend. It's like the Shawshank Redemption in there, right? <laughs> yeah, sure, just like that. <laughs> 
Well, one one thing that I wanted to bring up in this is kind of the the connection between the two films of translation questions, just like the the idea of of things getting lost in translation. Bang was very concerned with the host that people weren't going to get like kind of the metaphor of the young man ending up in the end, kind of adopting his own younger self and raising him, which is something that you, you're probably not going to get unless you speak Korean and, and can see that they they speak similarly. He's given a lot of interviews about Parasite, about the way he he just doesn't think uh, international audiences are going to get a ton of stuff about uh, like the food or the culture, um, about various ways of living in here, like the whole Ram Dom thing. He just <laughs> did not seem to think international audiences would get. I'm curious whether there were anything in either of these films that, that threw you guys that you felt weren't coming across in translation. Well, Ram Dom and I had to look up because I thought it was the joke was that the mother was so unfamiliar with Japanese cuisine, she was confusing udon, but ran and and ramen. But um, I guess not. I just just read where apparently like the actual dish is kind of hard to translate, so I did that. But I mean the the actual thing there is the pairing of cheap noodles with expensive steak. Whereas the Kim family would never have you know, sort of steak to begin with, uh, maybe not, couldn't even afford the noodles. Uh, but I mean, you watching, I felt like there was, there was a lot that if I was more, fam- if I was Korean or more familiar with Korean culture, I would have gotten. But I think that the haves and have not scenarios are, are, are sadly transportable across virtually any culture, you know? So, uh, you know, I think the film still works, even if you don't, even if you don't pick up on every possible detail. He's got commercial instincts, which is why his films have, even the ones that he has done in Korea, have translated so readily to international audiences and American audiences because he does have a style that um, is quite accessible. I don't think you could you would ever look at the host or Parasite as being impenetrable in any way, despite maybe having a couple of moments that are lost in translation. Karen Han did an interview with Bong at Palyan, I believe, and one of the things, that they talked about a bunch of things, but one of the things they talked about was sort of these you know, untranslatable Korean culture elements. And the, the Ramdan was was one of them. And the other thing was the, the whole idea of a scholar's rock, the very metaphorical uh, rock that we've referenced a, a few times now. And I found it interesting in that discussion that both Bong and Karen, uh, who who is Korean-American, also found the scholar's rock to be sort of a like antiquated or, or weird tradition. Like they didn't, you know, it, it was meant to be odd even in a in a korean cultural context you know or it was like something from a generation or two removed you know so the fact that it is brought to the family by this young friend is even for koreans apparently sort of a a strange thing yeah i guess there's no way for a non-korean audience to get the fact that this is an antiquated tradition that it's weird to have the young generation engaging with but Mm -hmm. as far as the rest of it goes like it didn't even occur to me to be baffled by that like the just as the idea of inequity is pretty universal the idea of superstition is pretty universal the idea of like a good luck token uh, or really even just a cultural tradition is pretty universal and somebody walking in and saying you know oh my father collects these and has this belief around these things and here's one of them for you to bring you luck like 
I don't think that it feels like there's anything to lose in translation there. Maybe the uh, the extreme subtleties of it, but I I certainly wasn't left going. I th- they think a rock will bring them luck somehow. <laughs> I'm out of here. <laughs> the heck with this movie. Well, and I and I think that's seated in in the way that they talk about the rock too. You know, it's it's very tongue in cheek the whole thing about noting that it's metaphorical and then it turns into this sort of cursed object at, at the end. It kind of kicks the legs out from under the idea that like oh this means something. It's highly symbolic. It's like yeah they say it's highly symbolic, but it actually is kind of not or not in any sort of traceable way. So I want to let's talk about the titles because I feel like obviously we have very compatible titles here, Parasite and the Host. Um, <laughs> I'm ashamed how long it took me to put together the host. I, I didn't even thing. think about it until you brought up the fact that we were looking at Parasite and the Host. Uh, but with Parasite, I feel like there are, are a number of different parasitic relationships that make the title make sense from the, the, the Kims and, and the Parks to the, the family living down below to the fact that the, the Park family is you can also see them as kind of a par- you know, the rich as a kind of a parasite on the rest of the country as well. Uh, so there's a lot to turn over there. With the host, it's a little more curious because I, I don't even really know what is the host is in that instance. There's the idea of this virus that gets passed around that actually turns out to be a cover story. I mean, wh- where, why is it called the host? I guess is sort of a, sort of my question. I have to admit that I do not know. I mean, it sounds, it sounds scary, but at the same time, I'm not sure the title really gets explained. Would it help if we interpreted it as like a, a host of demons? Like if we interpret it as like a collective noun as opposed to a, a singular noun implying hospitality? Or maybe it's saying this, the well, host is the country and yes, this is really that, a movie about it. Korea. There yeah. it is. Yeah, that was, that was exactly what I was about to say. And, and the host is in the Korea that's also hosting the America, right. also hosts America I mean, as right. well. I mean, this, this would, and, and if that host did not exist, then you wouldn't have this monster would not emerge yeah. i mean see it's one of the things that seems obvious is you know it's like calling something you know insidious you know it's just a movie it's just a, <laughs> it's just a cool sounding word to really explain what the movie is about you know there's a layer to that uh, with uh, the host yeah consistently uh, as i was doing research on the host the movie i kept running up against the 2013 stephanie meyer story which is about aliens who use human beings as as hosts who possess them and control them so a much more literal interpretation there. Um, and I just kept running against running up against images of that film. And it made the title of uh, Bong's film seem a little stranger by comparison, because the relationship there wasn't at all as clear. For the record, I like the movie Insidious. It's a really good, really good ghost story. But. For the record, I don't like the movie The Host, the 2013 <laughs> Stephanie Meyer derived version. It's not very one. good. Yeah, You're I, not missing much. Okay. This is a much better version of the host. Did you all catch some of the internal bong self homage material in this movie? Which one? Well, there are just two things that stood out, but there was another one that I think I saw and noted and forgot. But the two that stood out were the um, Olympic uh, sport that comes right. into play, the hammer throw in uh, this movie and the, the uh, archery in the other film. And then the kind of hat tip to Memories of Murder uh, by having the, the shot in the background of the detective falling down a flight of stairs, uh, which is which again kind of a, is a little bit of a nod to himself and and uh, things that were in his, in his other movies. Well, wait, the monster also falls down a flight of stairs. <laughs> wait, is that what you're referring to? No, no, no. I was referring to Memories of Murder because that that's all a bunch of bumbling detectives literally falling over. 
so is falling downstairs just a theme with him in general, or is it just these two? Well, it's funny. I mean, if it, it would be really, it, it's really funny in Parasite until it's not until it, that uh, poor previous <laughs> housekeeper you know hits her head. But the idea of, of her getting shoved down the stairs at that moment is quite funny. So yeah, I guess it's a it's a it's kind of a slapstick bit he likes to return to, but well, but you know, but specifically a detective doing it that has to be kind of a self homage. Yeah, I was gonna say when we were talking about kind of upstairs downstairs and and the peril of downstairs, like one of Parasite's most trenchant images, most memorable, most really horrifying images in a film that's not a horror film, is just the darkness of that doorway down into the basement and the yeah. way people materialize up out of it or melt down into it. The way oh my god the flashback to him seeing the ghost oh gosh yeah the, the <laughs> that that is probably the scariest traumatic the ghost thing which uh, yeah. the whole idea of the kid being uh, deeply traumatized by that ghost just kept taking me back to cold comfort farm and I saw something nasty in the woodshed <laughs> <laughs> I'm deeply damaged I saw I saw something come out of the basement but you can really see where that would mess a kid up pretty hard for life. Uh, seeing that, seeing that, having that experience. Sure. Also, another notable staircase in Parasite. So many staircases. We got away from the upstairs downstairs pairing before we could uh, before I could shout it out. But the the whole scene where they escape from the park house and travel home in the rain to find their apartment flooded, like the actual progression downwards through the city and then them going down that staircase into their neighborhood, just like crisscrossed with all these wires. Like first of all, it's a beautiful beautiful shot in and of itself but it is like an actual descent into hell you know like this this flood that's happening so it's just really really smart visual storytelling yeah of course one of the binding elements of these movies is song kang ho in the lead role and which also leads to another connection which is humor and slapstick because that that's something that he brings to the table there's just something so special about this this actor he's gangly he's big he's clumsy He's likable. I think he. I think there's a kind of a. These characters both have an absence of ambition. Really, I mean, you know, we talk about you know these films might be about class to some extent, especially Parasite, but it's not. As we've said before, it's not really about social climbing for them so much as just survival. And he's a he's kind of a kind of a happy go lucky guy. In both of these in both movies, right? As they start, he's not. In fact, to reach that homicidal point. And Parasite, he has to really get pushed hard because it's not really in his his, his nature. He's uh, he's just a very likable, relatable guy, uh, every man to kind of put in the middle of all of these Bong Joon-ho movies he's been in. He's just got a very kind of like fleshy face, like just very like round cheeks. And now that I think about it, he reminds me more than anybody of Jesse Plemons. Like mm. he he has huh. the ability, the same ability that Jesse Plemons has uh, to kind of like turn down his charisma and just appear like very amiable, very open and, and placid and accepting of whatever comes his way, like very receptive and interested. But he also has the ability to kind of like turn that charisma off and become like scary if, if that's a mm. direction that he wants to go in. He seems like a safe everyman unless he's deliberately trying to not play it that way. And I feel like in, in both The Host and Parasite, the age difference and the the difference between playing a character who's meant to be like jovial and and sloppy and immature and young 
and trying versus somebody who's kind of like aged into his responsibility and does actually like have some competence when it comes to leading his family. But maybe because because of the poverty that they live in, they've all like risen up to his level of competence. They're all survivalists, you know, maybe not as strong a provider or as, as strong a patriarch as he might be like in another family. I think those characters are very divorced from each other in age, but both bring kind of a, a similar like kind of like open charisma to the table. I have a question, just a sort of logistics question with the host. Is he actually lobotomized? Like, I feel like we see it happen, but it has no effect on the character. Like, he acts exactly the same. Is, it, but is, we that, see, like, is that the joke? I think so. I think it's meant to be, but it's unclear to me. Maybe this is a loss in translation thing, or maybe it's maybe the ambiguity is, is the joke. One of the things I like so much about his performance in The Host is how childlike it is and the way that that allows emotions to come through in this amplified way. Like when he realizes that he's grabbed the wrong girl's hand in that moment, just the look on his face and the the self-hatred in in that moment is just, it's gutting, you know? And there's a lot of moments like that, that in that performance where it's just, it feels like a very pure, unfiltered emotional response that you would expect, you know, more from a child than from a grown man. So that train of thought led me to the question of what actually happened to him when he you know got the needle in the brain did anything change was anything supposed to change i I gotta say first that shot of him grabbing the wrong girl's hand like it's it operates in slow motion i think because there's so much going on for the audience to take in like it is a horrifying moment where he loses his daughter but at the same time it is a comic moment like the the sheer disbelief on the face of that little girl with the glasses looking at but him like and her dad oh yeah yeah i mean it's it's like it's a progression of jokes Mm -hmm. there's the look on his face as he realizes it's the wrong girl there's the look on her face it's just like who are you you freak and then there's the even stronger disbelief on the face of the father grabbing her away from him as they run past him. It's like, it's like a series of things slotting into place all very, very rapidly. And and you need the slow motion to process it. It's just a great moment of like horror and humor at the same time. He's so good at using scenes like that action scenes like that. As storytelling, not just as action scenes himself. I, mean, I think Spielberg is actually a really good comparison. I mean, it's just there's a there's a certain skill that 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 a lot of directors just never develop, and he, he's had it. You know, obviously had it with the host, and he's got it here. Yeah, but as far as Gangdo being lobotomized, I guess remember that what you said about uh, people coming back to the exact same place that they started in. Uh, keep in mind that we first see him like passed out with his head mashed into a bunch of change, uh, <laughs> like mouth hanging open, drooling, yeah. uh, kind of comatose to the world, even to the point where when his father like grabs his head and lifts it up to pry some of the change off his cheek, he's non-responsive. So it's possible that he just starts in a place where <laughs> lobotomization isn't going to set him back any further than that the needle just went into an empty void inside of his head (laughs) just as we wrap up i kind of want to circle back to the idea of of humor in these films i mean we've talked a lot about it we've highlighted a bunch of moments but there's also a bunch of moments we haven't highlighted so i guess i'm curious if there's 
moments of humor, either, you know, explicit slapstick or, or of the darker variety that anyone would like to highlight as we as we head out of this discussion. Does it make me a bad person that I laughed when she started using the peach as a weapon? <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, it's awful. I mean, it's a truly awful thing to do, but it's like, oh, that's just using such an innocuous thing as, as a weapon. It had been set up so well as well, you know, too. So, um, I don't know. I laughed. The, the one, the moment in The Host that always gets me is after this terrible tragedy has happened and everyone, all the survivors have been quarantined by the military and an officer wearing a, a hazmat suit uh, storms into the gymnasium and then falls, slips and falls on the floor <laughs> and then gets back up yes. and kind of looks around the room as if nothing has happened. I mean, that is such a hilarious, random human moment that's just like a perfect uh, Bong Joon-ho. So that that stands out for me. I mean, Parasite is probably a ton though, like like that. I mean, that's it's because it's also a very funny movie. Uh, I mean, I mentioned al- already the I mean, the movie had me right at the start with uh, him wanting <laughs> wanting to keep the window open to yeah. benefit from the fumigation. I guess what leaps to mind for me is the sequence in Parasite where uh, the family is hiding underneath a table uh, while the the rich couple begin to have sex on the couch, which is interesting on a couple of levels because you just, you don't really expect them they're so poreless and and glassine they're so like artificial in a way that you don't expect them to do something that human and then there's something specific and very graphic about the sex that they start to have that seems almost more like actual people have sex than like people in movies mm-hmm. tend to have sex. So the, uh, the cutting back and forth between like them moving in that, moving in that direction, like moving through foreplay, which I guess is particularly uncommon in movies where people have sex and just the sheer discomfort of the family. Uh, you know, there's, there's a level of, we can't go anywhere. We're going to get caught, but there's also a level of I'm stuck under here with my two teenage kids. It's like, the the kind of uh, feeling that you get when you're watching an R-rated movie with your parents and an unexpectedly graphic sex scene comes on and everybody is just sort of sitting there paralyzed like I really wish I wasn't in the room with with this happening with a family member like that's sort of what that evoked uh, but just in a very tiny way I kind of want to call out the moment where uh, Ki Jong is about to ring the doorbell for the first time uh, to go in to present herself as the art tutor. And she and her brother stop and she does the little like sing song mnemonic routine uh, to get all of her (laughs) her facts, her made up facts about her identity straight. Mm. One of the things I really love about Parasite is that this family, they're grifters and liars and con artists, but they're good at what they do and they support each other so unequivocally. You know, there's there's no sense of sibling rivalry. There's no sense of generation gap. They're all completely on the same wavelength. They're a unit in a way that I think is rare in cinema and is really appealing. And that little moment of her like doing her little sing song is jokey and it's funny, but it also just speaks to a level of competence on all their parts that I think is pretty delightful throughout the film. I'll wrap it up from a quick little moment from the host that I I don't think I ever noticed before the, this last viewing and actually doesn't involve any of the of the main characters but it's just a little standalone scene where we're seeing like news reports you know about the virus and we see people out in the city and they're all wearing masks and there's just a 
a phalanx of people wearing masks, like lined up on a curb, like watching a news report saying how the symptoms of this virus uh, resemble the common cold. And one of the guys starts coughing and takes his mask down and spits into the puddle Mm -hmm. and everyone kind of like shies away from him. And then at that moment, a truck goes by and sprays all of them (laughs) with the puddle that he just spit into. It's just a little standalone scene. Like, that's all it is. But it's so much packed in there about the fear that is being peddled at, at this moment and uh, sort of your your inability c- to control anything in the face of this kind of fear mongering. Well, I'm about to enjoy my ability to control bringing this conversation to a close because <laughs> we, we still have a lot of recommendations to get to before we can wrap. The host is widely available on streaming services, including the Korean version playing free on Tubi with ad support, and it's on DVD and Blu-ray. Parasite is in theaters right now. We'll be right back with your next picture show. it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call this Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you lately? I have been a little bit cool on Pedro Almodovar of late. I mean, I, I just, I didn't like, I, I, I'm so excited, basically. <laughs> I think his, his other films are actually quite solid, but I haven't really fallen in love with a film of his since Talk to Her, um, and that's been a while. So I went out and I saw Pain and Glory, which I know got a lot of acclaim at Cannes, but it, you know I had a little bit of skepticism about whether it would live up to the hype, and it, it, it absolutely does. It's one of his best movies, uh, one of his most personal movies. Um, I think you could compare it to something like Eight and a Half or something like that. It's one of these kind of like end of a, you know, a filmmaker reflecting on his life. I mean, I guess Eight and a Half is much more of a midlife crisis type of thing, right? Uh, uh, this is much more. This is actually in the tradition of a lot of films I've been we've been seeing this year, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and I think and I think that the, the Irishman, from all accounts, is like this about these great filmmakers kind of reflecting on the end a little bit. The stars Antonio Banderas as Almodovar, some version of Almodovar, a guy who's, who's been away from filmmaking for a while, uh, who's dealing with a tremendous amount of physical pain um, that he's tr- trying, to, trying to treat and not doing so all that successfully. But it kind of goes back and forth with a lot of flashbacks about his childhood, about key relationships in his life. Um, it's all woven together in that Almodovar way. Uh, I mean, certainly... Uh, he's never lost his touch for plotting and for structure and for mixing a lot of different storylines together. And it's just, it's such a beautiful, touching film with a lot of like just individual episodes that stand out. I mean, there's a whole sequence involving a former lover that he hasn't seen in, in decades and, and how they are able to reconnect for one night that's just so moving and uh this is it's antonio Banaras is the lead and is uh as good as a performance as you'll ever see from him and yeah i really strongly recommend it i think this is this is a key work from Almodovar, and i think it deserves all the praise it's been getting all right scott i gotta ask uh, yeah. you haven't you haven't really fallen for a Almodovar film sure. since talk to her you you didn't love the skin i live in i know yeah i, I did actually I, I liked it i mean again the only one education yeah, again, I like these films. And Volver, I mean, I like all of these movies, but in term, but I didn't haven't loved a film of his since Talk to Her. I just wanted to bring that up. I mean, He's I good. like He's I've good. I've had the in and out problem with Almodovar too, but Skin I Live In is one of my all time favorites. Ah, uh, okay. As so, far as painting, Scott, and- you're saying that Scorsese and Almodovar 
are good directors. These are these are you're throwing yeah. out some really he's rough. He's good. Ability. He's good. Bong Joon Ho also <laughs> talented. Wait, wait, wait. We've got talented. three the Tarantino. good, good directors. Very good. This is this is giving me headaches yeah, here. So I can't keep directors. up. Pain and Glory. I I did not love that film the way you did. Oh. Uh, I I felt what? like there were too many. There were all of the different things going on in it just yeah. felt too disparate for me. No, 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 no. it's a portrait of a, of this man. It's, yeah, it's a portrait of this man. But I uh, like. I felt like the movie just clicked so so hard and so well when it start get it started getting to that romance angle. Like yeah. the the. But what ch- about the, what about the stuff with his mom and in the, the, in the, in the I was gonna in the I was gonna say Mister Mister Interrupty. Right. The childhood, the the childhood business where he kind of discovers his sexuality as a child, it God, it's so vivid, it's so beautifully realized, it's so intense, it's so sexual, and then kind of transitioning from that into, uh, you know, this this romance that meant so much to him and how he put it into his work, compared to like those two aspects of the film, the whole frame thing about the guy that he hasn't talked to in thirty years and and the heroine and. Uh, his his pain and like the weird sequence that he's narrating with all of this CGI, I, like a lot of that stuff just seemed really ephemeral and disconnected to me. And I, I'm really a little surprised that you embraced it so much when it's so like out of step with the much more classical stuff he's doing later in the film. No, no I think it's all it's all it's all the rich tapestry. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I think it all it all comes together quite well for me. I was hugely moved by it, and I think it's a. Uh, I think there are so many films that we've seen by f- master filmmakers about, about themselves. I mean, it seems like there's a point where these things te- can get autobiographical, and uh, he takes his own approach, and it pays off. I mean, my own, the only complaint I have about it is that it, it is is the digital photography is very is just too video-y for me. Um, but I've had, I have that complaint a lot. Fair enough, Keith. What about you? I watched a movie called Dolomite Is My Name, which is playing on Netflix now, uh, which I can I can recommend with some reservations, but 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 I had enjoyed it too much to let any of those reservations kind of get in the way. It's directed by Craig Brewer, who did Hustle and Flow, uh, and it's written by Scott Alexander and Larry Karaszewski, who you know written any number of, of offbeat. Well, they wrote the movie Problem Child, but they also um, <laughs> wrote a number best known for biopics from American Crime Story, the the first one, uh, People vs. O.J. Simpson. Um, most relevant to us and for this movie, Ed Wood. Uh, and in some ways they're kind of remaking Ed Wood with this because it's very much a movie about people that who are making a movie that don't really know what they're doing and w- end up with a product that is, by any conventional measure, uh, not a traditionally great movie. But what really sets apart to me is the stars is well, the whole cast, but the star is Eddie Murphy, who plays Rita Ray Moore, who's sort of a down on his luck uh, nightclub entertainer who's been a, tried to be a singer, tried to be a comedian, came to Hollywood to be like the total package uh, song and dance actor, singer, singer, uh, uh, Renaissance man. And it hasn't really worked out with for him. He's, he's tubby and middle aged and, and still kind of striving for it. And he finds a shtick by taking this character of Dolomite, who he kind of derives from various like street rhymes, like old street rhymes he learned from homeless people on the street that he kind of, you know, hones into his own routine, kind of like put a rap in a way where he's like doing these sort of rhythmic recitations of, of, uh, of uh, stories. 
And then it turns into, you know, which gets some success on a level he's never really had before that he then tries to turn into a movie, which became the classic black exploitation film, Dolomite. And this is really about that reinvention and the making of that movie. The, the rest of the cast is great. It's got Keegan-Michael Key, Craig Robinson, Mike Epps, Titus Burgess, um, the, and others too. The two that really stood out to me are Wesley Snipes, who's hilarious as the actor. He's uh, Derville Martin, a real person who he hires to direct the film and who kind of thinks he's above it all and is hilariously um, uh, removed from the process. And uh, Divine Joy Randolph, who's basically best known as a Broadway actress. She plays Lady Reed, who is another like person he discovers and, and turns into a nightclub comic and co-stars in the film. And, and it's a really uh, warm performance, too. There's a lot of biopic by numbers stuff here. There's a lot of stuff that gets set up and paid off and Easter eggs, if you know the Dolomite films. And, and it's not, in some ways, the most creative approach to the biopic, but I enjoy just about every minute of it. Uh, I think it's delightful. And Murphy, it's so good to see him in a role that lets him do real acting while also like playing to his strengths as a creator, like these big comic characters. And he's kind of the right age to play Rudy Remore. And like, there's a just, obviously he's enjoyed much more success than Rudy Remore even, you know, ever enjoyed at the height of his success. But there's enough, a little parallel there with his own like career ups and downs that there's kind of a personal resonance to it too. Anyway, I'd recommend it. It's right there on Netflix for you. Tasha, you saw this too, right? Yeah, I saw it at uh, Fantastic Festa. It was one of the secret screenings, I believe. Not so secret now. I kind of had some of the same reservations about the the biopic uh, format to it. In in part, like the early parts are so lively and diverse as he's like basically scrapping together a career out of like all of these different parts. Like he's willing to do anything uh, in order to get famous. He's he's doing his own little form of hustle and flow. And the movie spends so much time on the making of that first movie that. It, it feels like almost like a separate film. It, it mm-hmm. feels like a kind of uh, street level, like hustler Ed Wood, uh, which could have been the entire movie and it would have been fine. But as it is, it's like, it feels like a three act play where the, the second act is two thirds of the play. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the balance there gets a little weird, but I do love a film about filmmaking and uh, a film about scrappy indie filmmaking and a film about no budget filmmaking and kind of a film about no talent filmmaking. And it's all of these things. I, I do think that Murphy is just delightful in this film. I, I think he's so enjoyable. And I think there's just a lot going on in general about uh, how black audiences process things differently from white audiences and how like the the black creative industry has adapted to that and, and serves that and how kind of the white entertainment industry has scrambled to either keep up or, uh, you know, steal everything it can from from that industry and like the sort of accommodation that goes back and forth between different segments of production and different segments of exploitation and different segments of industry and different segments of audience, like all of that I think mm-hmm. is pretty fascinating. Yeah. I loved all the scenes of distributors like laying out like who we, you know, we do exploitation. We do exploitation films for, for, for Southerners and for black audiences and these play here and these play there and this type of theater. I loved his discovery of four walling, which was very common practice in the seventies. Uh, where people, distributors would come through and just come to town, rent out a theater, 
and then take all the profits uh, from from the, the ticket sales. Um, you know, there were all these like little Dolomite did it, and then there's all these like little like search for Sasquatch kind of kind of uh, <laughs> pseudo documentary places that would come in to, for a little bit and just rent it out. I remember this from my childhood, like these strange movies that would play for one week, and but you know, it's a successful model at the time. Yeah, there just there's some things that happen in that film that are so over-the-top exaggeration versions of uh, a classic underdog story. I'm thinking about the screening that he has where he's very worried about people showing up and apparently nobody in the entire world shows up for a movie before one minute yeah. before the movie's going to play. <laughs> I know. And then 100,000 people suddenly turn up all at the same time mm-hmm. in a crowd. There's degrees to which this movie is exaggerated in ways that don't make it fun. It, it just kind of makes it dumb. But the, they're few and far between. I, I, I'm i with you on it. I'm with you on recommending it. I, I'm not a big fan of the show real footage of the people over the credits thing that every biopic seems to have here. But it does drive home how well they recreate the original scenes and other stuff from Rudy Moore. Like when they set up the cover shoot for his Eat Out More Often album, it's like <laughs> they're doing every detail of that and it's, it's kind of perfect. And, and like the the moments they have from, they kind of combine moments from Dolomite and the sequel, The Human Tornado, kind of a greatest hits from those movies. Uh, but it's like, oh wait, I, I know all these moments. They're really getting them kind of note perfect here. Yeah, I'm I'm super not a fan of that. I did a a big dialogue with uh, my former colleague Brian Bishop back at The Verge about how little I like that uh, that convention. But here it's so perfect because it also just gives you a sense you want to sympathize with these people as they're making this film. You want to assume that what they're making is is going to be spectacular and then when you see the results you assume it is but it plays and it's, it, it it does play it's a lot of fun but you also get to see sort of the the gap between the movie made about the movie and and the actual results and the actual results are a hoot you want to go see this movie after you've seen the movie about how it was made but you can also see how amateur it is which is just another level of fun on mm-hmm. it yeah recommend it tasha how about you this one's actually a bit of a curveball because it's it's not new, it's not recent. But uh, every single time uh, we talked about the host in planning, I kept thinking about this movie, The Perfect Host, which is a 2010 movie that one of those like micro budget, micro indie, barely released kind of things that I just happened to run across and kind of fell in love with. Uh, it's the only feature film directed by Nick Tomei, who apparently is now has another uh, feature in production nine years later. But it's this tiny little, almost a a two-hander between uh, a man named Clayton Crawford and David Hyde Pierce of uh, Frasier fame about a criminal who flees the site of a robbery gone badly and cons his way into the home of uh, what he thinks is a, a rich man who's about to have a dinner party and then tries to forestall that dinner party. And it, then it's twists all the way down. It does actually have some parallels with Parasite in that you have uh, a guy, a struggling man on the outs with society who tries to take advantage of uh, a rich person and then a lot of very unexpected things happen and it goes to some some surreal and bizarre places. But it's one of those films, it, it has a little bit of feeling in common with Under the Silver Lake without having anything like that movie's 
scope in terms of of casting in terms of locations in terms of travel if you can imagine the mental spaces of that movie just all compacted into mostly into a single set that's pretty much what the perfect host is uh it's a very strange little film that's just about the surprises and about the performances of these two men as they kind of contend against each other as they kind of uh both struggle for survival in this Sort of it, what what's sort of a hostage situation uh, against each other, but very very unconventional hostage situation. So, don't confuse the perfect host with the host. Uh, but I highly recommend looking up the perfect host and watching it. It's a very small film. It's just a really really fun one. The more you describe it, the less I understand what kind of movie it is. So <laughs> you've definitely gotten me intrigued about that one. It, it's definitely one of those movies that uh, in in the end you kind of recommend by saying, and the less you know about it, the better. The the more you'll appreciate how unexpected it is. Genevieve, what about you? Well, I'm gonna recommend a movie that I that came out earlier this year. We kind of danced around doing a pairing around it for the podcast but never did and i know keith really wanted to talk about it um and i finally caught up with it and that film is rocket man it's directed by dexter fletcher who notoriously took over directing duties on bohemian rhapsody after brian singer was fired and uh given that i loathed bohemian rhapsody and am generally kind of dubious of musical biopics as a genre uh i went into this film with shall we say low expectations despite Uh, Keith's positivity toward it. And it turns out maybe that's the best possible way to go into it. Uh, Because even though it is on its surface, sort of a like soup to nuts Elton John biopic and one that's narratively structured around his struggles with addiction, no less. Uh, It's actually fairly unconventional in the form it takes, which is essentially a Broadway jukebox musical. Uh, And that's a good match for a subject like Elton John, not just because of his associations with Broadway and not just because it allows the film to cherry pick his best known songs and scatter them willy nilly throughout the historical narrative, uh, but also because it allows the film to play thematically with ideas of artifice and image making that were so central to John's career, particularly in the 1970s, which is where the the bulk of the film takes place. There's a good amount of breaking with reality for the sake of spectacle in this film, which is sometimes, though thankfully not always done in the context of John's drug use. Um, And it is always in the context of performance as identity, which allows the film to sort of mull these deeper, more universal ideas within the specifics of John's history and music. Uh, And the music, for what it's worth, is really good and performed throughout by star Taron Edgerton, whose take on John is pretty straightforward mimicry, but achieved at a very high level. Uh, It's not a perfect film, but it is a pleasantly audacious one uh, and one that feels like it reflects its subject on not just a narrative and musical level, but a formal one as well. Uh, And I think if you've, you know, ever found yourself humming along to an Elton John song, it's at the very least worth your time. Yeah, I I had had fun with this. And part of it is I I think it's I also did not like Bohemian Rhapsody, so I think my expectations were lower. But I do love Elton John, so just like <laughs> yes. you know, seeing the songs, um, I, the best parts I think were the musical sequences, and mm-hmm. I liked it enough to forgive just really groaning the stuff that just makes you groan, like the whole when he talks to his inner child in in therapy, yeah. <laughs> like literally, you know, embraces his childhood self. It's just oh, why are you doing this, Rocket Man? But the rest of it, I don't know. I, I think it's very. Much I mean, worth but time. but again, like in the context of a stage musical, which sure. is really the, like the lens through which I viewed this, like that's a totally natural thing to do on stage. Like it's really sort of a you know it exists between the two media. I think in a way that 
not a lot of films do. And I think if you're resistant to those elements of of musical theater, it may uh, rub you the wrong way. But one, once I was on its wavelength, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, this is musical theater. I'm down. I think Edgerton's <laughs> really good, too. I think he just throws himself into that role really well. When is Joel Edgerton not really good? That's true. Not Joel. Taron. Terrence not good in a lot of stuff. When is Joel Edgerton not really good? <laughs> He's always good. <laughs> Terrence Edgerton, it's, it's fine. It's yeah. always fine. And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out November 19th and 26th. Genevieve, what's coming up next? The Mel Brooks comedy The Producers is about a producer and an accountant who devise a scheme to raise tons of money for the worst Broadway production imaginable and take off with the extra cash when the play flops. The name of the play? Springtime for Hitler, a gay romp with Adolf and Eva at Berchtesgaden. And yet when the play opens, audiences unexpectedly find Hitler funny, which is not the expected reaction to a genocidal dictator. Those same queasy feelings have been drummed up around Jojo Rabbit, Taika Waititi's controversial new satire about a lonely German boy who has Hitler for an imaginary friend. Are there limits to how a man this unfathomably evil should be depicted in movies? And should we feel guilty about laughing? For our next pairing, we'll look at how the producers and Jojo Rabbit walk this particular tightrope. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Host, Parasite, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion. I'll get around to it one of these days, guys, or read it on a future episode (laughs) of the show. Finally, before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Genevieve. I am the WD TV editor at Vulture, and you can find me on Twitter tweeting sometimes, occasionally, to Scott's delight, <laughs> uh, at Genevieve Kosky. Uh, Scott? Uh, yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias. I tweet quite often, more often than uh, Genevieve. Um, uh, you can also find my work in uh, NPR, uh, Washington Post, New York Times, um, the Ringer and other fine websites. I'm also the editor in chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Uh, also, <laughs> if you think about, if you look at the times, uh, 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 by the time this episode airs, uh, my my list of the 50 best things you could watch on Disney Plus <laughs> is going to be on the times and will be maintained from Only here 50? from here to eternity. Well, the thing, yeah, it's it's complicated. Ha- hashtag it's complicated. <laughs> uh, but 50 is quite a bit. 50, 50 is a pretty good number. Scott? And uh, it's a, it's a nice mix of things. I think if I were to do a, if I were to do a true list, it would just all it would be all classic animated films and Pixar stuff, but I had to kind of like you know dip into some other things. Not not to do your job for you, but you sure. should also be plugging the Musings books. Yes, that's true. Uh, uh the uh, uh the Musings anthologies uh, volume one and volume two featuring many of your favorite film critics doing excellent work. Um, those have been released and are available in the oscilloscope store for, you know, you have to pay a little bit, but, but there's only, only, only a thousand copies are being made of each volume. So it's a precious thing to have. And the, the writing is quite strong. If I don't say so myself, and I'm in there and I, I here's, I'm going to make a special offer to it just to our listeners. If you see me, I'll sign that book for you. Wow. How about that? Incredible. Yeah. Well, fine. It, I'm not in that book, but if you see me, I'll sign it for you, too. In <laughs> fact, I'll sign it Keith Phipps. I'll take whatever writing you got, Tasha. Man, for a second, I, I couldn't even parse. Uh, I you'll, you'll take assignments from me. You'll take assignments from me. It's a really incestuous uh, knot of editors and assignments up in here, mm-hmm. let me tell you. Keith, where can we find you? Oh, you can find me all over the place. Um, I am a freelance writer. You can find me on Twitter at kfips3000. I've been writing for The Ringer. I've been writing for Vulture. I've been writing for Mel. 
Montreal magazine. I've been writing for The Verge. Maybe I'll write for you again at Polygon. I've been I'm writing regularly for, for Fangoria.com, which which uh, it's just a pleasure to get in the in there and write about horror movies. Um, and um, you know, I'm sure there's other places too, but that's uh, that's the main the main stuff right now. Tasha, how about you? Well, as we were speaking, uh, I am wrapping up my penultimate day at TheVerge.com. Tomorrow is my last day. And after an insanely short break of a couple of days, I'll be taking over as the film and TV editor at Polygon.com, where you're likely to find more of my writing. I It's been very hard to find a writing time lately because there's been so much going on for the last two months of insane levels of awesome film. And it's not going to get that much much better in the next couple of months. There's going to be a lot coming out, mm-hmm. but I'm already signed up to write about a bunch of stuff that I've already seen and am very, very excited to uh, to speak on. So look for me at polygon.com, both as an editor and a signer and as a writer. And you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. We're currently planning to talk about Martin Scorsese's The Irishman. I hear that guy's a fairly good filmmaker. Mm-hmm. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going thanks to dan the snake jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast the next picture show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts please tune in next time that old saying them that's got or them that gets uh, is something i can't see if you gotta have something before you can get something how do you get your first and still a mystery to me? I see folk with long cars and fine clothes. That's why they're called the smarter set. Because they manage to get, oh, when only them that's got supposed to get. And I ain't got nothing yet. Whoa.